Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Misery Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, August 4th, we're studying Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 to 26. In today's text, Solomon recognizes the vanity in spending an entire lifetime toiling only to die and to leave everything for someone else to enjoy. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Sam Belts. Pastor Belts serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Oskaloosa, Iowa. Pastor Belts, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, thanks, Tim. It's good to be back. So, Pastor Belts, I've known you a little while, and I am guessing that the book of Ecclesiastes is one that you like, because you seem to be a pretty direct guy, and Solomon's pretty direct and realistic here in this book. Talk to us about the book of Ecclesiastes. First of all, Tim, I am flattered to have known you for as long as I've known you, and that the thing you say about me is that I am direct. I think I really appreciate that, and I take that as a good (laughs) because... That's my greatest gift, and I think a lot of people would say my greatest flaw is that you know exactly where you stand with me, um, and that's why I love Ecclesiastes so much. I actually, I think I, I think I was chit chatting with you and saying I just led a Bible study for my congregation on Ecclesiastes, and uh, at the beginning of the study, we had like maybe fifteen or sixteen people that would come. By the end of the study. There was only two people that were showing up on a regular basis <laughs> because of how direct Ecclesiastes is and how hard hitting the entire book is because it, it deals with the question of meaninglessness in the midst of a life trapped between your birth and tra- in time and living between a secular culture, if we want to call it that, right? A godless culture, a wicked culture, a wicked situation, a wicked world or living uh, your daily life in the footsteps of God, in communion with him, under his uh, under His kingdom, in his everlasting innocence, righteousness, and blessedness. And that's really uh, what Solomon is up to uh, as he traces this sort of uh, Mensa project, right? This thought experiment for a faithful Israelite, especially an Israelite who's the king, and how he's going to conduct his life as a faithful person and his life as a secular person when he walks this path of difficulty in daily life, right? Uh, which is uh, which communicates so clearly uh, to the experience that so many number one Christians have in the Western world, right? This is not this is not just this communicates to people in general. I think a wider and broader audience, but especially for Christians who struggle with the the meaninglessness of secular fulfillment. Or people who don't struggle with the meaninglessness of secular fulfillment, which I think was probably one of the reasons why, uh, you know, we had some attrition with this with this study that I had because when Solomon starts dropping the bombs, which we don't get to get to all the bombs in Ecclesiastes, we should, you know, I'm glad you're doing this text because it is a very timely text. But here, when Solomon talks about the labor or toil of an individual, uh, it brings up the aims of that toil and labor. Right. It brings up what is the what is the foundation in the morning 
when we put our hands to any useful task, what is our aim and outcome of this task? And Solomon destroys the hopefulness of a secular outcome. He just absolutely destroys it. And he proclaims the hopefulness of a religious Christian, I mean, uh, in his day, Hebrew, but in our day, Christian aim. So uh, I look forward to talking about it because uh, this needs to be talked about more. More Christians need to probably come into a more critical understanding of what what they're doing, why they're doing it, how they're doing it, and consider this a little bit more uh, because uh, uh, the Christian, what, what Solomon challenges in Ecclesiastes and especially this text is that our lives as Christians or, you know, for the Hebrews in their day are not meant to be compartmentalized so extensively that mm. our Christian conviction is meant to permeate every layer and aspect of our decision-making and activity on a daily basis. Uh, and here it's, it's our labor, right? Uh, which is a very important topic in the current situation, both culturally that we find ourselves in, but especially as Christians where, you know, uh, our labors have been frustrated a little bit, our incomes have been frustrated a little bit, and it, it uh, demands us to revisit questions that maybe we haven't had to visit in a while. Uh, and so I really, I do appreciate all of, all of Ecclesiastes, but this, this text in particular is very good, very important. But yeah, this, this text, I think shows up at least once in the three-year lectionary at, at one point. Yep. Yeah. So it's, yep. it's maybe one that's a little bit more familiar in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's striking, you know, the book of Ecclesiastes, there are a number of texts that I think get quoted at, in popular culture. Maybe the most famous one is coming up here in chapter three, there is a time for everything. Yep. yep. But there are a number of places where where Ecclesiastes does have this influence on culture, at least in a very surface level, without people actually digging into what the book actually says. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's exactly right. Everybody knows, you know, I can't even remember the name of the group that popularized that song from the 60s, right? But proclaiming the reality, I mean, like a ridiculously clear evangelical proclamation from pop culture that... God is at work in his providence to bring about all sorts of different seasons and times within the daily life of people, which is one of the most gigantic evangelical proclamations and distinctions that people can come into contact with is that God is in control of everything and he forces everybody into different seasons. That's the way the world works. That's the order of the creation here in our, in our text though, uh, uh, we get again, the, the struggle that has gone on historically for individual people and communities, which is what is the aim of our toil? You get, mm. get secular governments that make certain claims. You get cultural, you know, cultural groups that make certain claims. You get church traditions that are going to make other claims. And here from the scriptures from Ecclesiastes, which predates so much of the influence and import of the Western world, uh, we have some very clear teachings from from God through his, through Solomon, who's uh, guided by the Holy Spirit to make some very clear assertions about the aims and outcomes of, of labor, of toil. So, all right, well, let's go ahead and take a look at what Solomon has to say. This is Ecclesiastes 2, beginning at verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. 
So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. That's our text for today. That's Ecclesiastes 2, verses 18 to 26. So again, those direct words from Solomon, Pastor Belts, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Who knows whether he's going to be wise or foolish? Help us into what Solomon starts with. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, a, this is I think, a common problem for a lot of people. Uh, and maybe not everybody, but a lot of people who put their hands to work and work and work and work and work and work, and they never stop to ask the question, what, why am I doing this? A very, very basic question, the question of being, the question of why, the question of aim, right? Um, I could give a whole, we could talk a whole long time about how uh, Ecclesiastes and Solomon are a massive antidote for the popular and cultural nihilism that the Western world has imbibed over the last 250 years. But uh, Solomon's Solomon is describing here a very uh, close problem and concern that a lot of people have. Why am I working in this job to have this money to, to do what, to, what am I doing this for? Right. Um, I was, it, I was just downstairs talking to somebody that I know, and he was talking about how, and he's an older gentleman and he was talking about how, you know, he had his life, he worked his job, he had his kids, they ate him out of house and home. He, you know, got, he got, his kids got out of the house, then his house needed repairs. So he had to get a mortgage. Then his wife died. And then he had to move into a different place to pay off the mortgage that he had. And now he's living in this apartment and he's all alone. And he didn't know, what did I do all this for? Why did I work? I worked for 42 years at this job and I don't have anything to show for it. What was the point of all this? And, and I said, you know, I told him, I was like, that's a hard question to answer at where you're at. Right. Like when you look back over 42 years of labor and you're sitting here sort of on an ash heap and you ask yourself, why did I do all this? Right now, there's probably answers that he's just not seeing, uh, obviously. But as a what Solomon is forcing into our eyes here is that this sort of secular, uh, driftless, aimless pursuit of an end right? And, and the, the, in the meantime, we're just laboring, right? We're just working and we don't have any aims. Revisiting those aims, as, as Solomon's going to get to in the second half, revisiting those aims, especially for Christians, is a massively, massively important aspect of the Christian daily life. Now, this, this forces into, you know, into my mind, right? The places where, as Christians, just like for Israel, uh, God forces his will and intention and desires onto the people, 
on a regular basis, right? He he wants to regularly show his people what's good, what's right, what's true. He wants to regularly come into contact with his people to orient their daily life, to give them a ground to stand on, not just to give them a ground to stand on, but to give them a trajectory after, you know, like, which way are we supposed to face? Where are we supposed to go? He He's a very, very clear, very, very concrete God. He He does not want his people to be confused. He does not want his people to be, right? And regularly, he is delivering to them good gifts, and regularly, they are making a mess of things. And now what Solomon is again pointing out here is that on a daily basis, if we are not reflecting on what's the aim of my day, what's the aim of my labor, why, you know, where is this headed? What direction is this going? What direction am I oriented in? What direction is my family oriented in? What direction is my church oriented in? Because we can talk a lot about the aimless trajectories of congregational life, let alone the aimless trajectories of pastoral ministries, you know, guys that just don't know what they're supposed to do on a daily basis. You talk about the aimless pursuits, right, of the labor of marriage, right? Do husbands and wives talk to each other? How are they connecting with each other? The aimless pursuits of the labor of parenting, right? We could talk about the, it, it could go on and on and on with different bullet point topics that we could spend hours and hours discussing because this is a big problem, right? And this aimlessness that Solomon is unearthing here this, this, and I, and Hevel, that's, that's the word, that's the Hebrew word that just pops up all over Ecclesiastes. And it's, I, I, you know, um, in my study that I did here at the congregation, what a very important, uh, image that the word Hevel is meant to evoke is like, uh, uh, it's always connected to like smoke, vapor, vapid stuff. And, and it's like, you know, uh, my kids love, uh, being outside at dark. And, uh, and when we have a campfire, they love flashing a flashlight into the campfire to see the smoke because the, against the black of the, of the night, the smoke seems so concrete and tangible. And then they, they reach their hand up into the beam of light that's touching the smoke, thinking that they're going to be able to feel the smoke and there's just nothing there and they see it just wisp around their fingers and then they don't feel anything and cognitively it's really hard for them to figure out how this thing that's hanging in the air that looks like a pillar has absolutely nothing to it and that's exactly how solomon is describing aimless toil it's this thing that has this appearance of solidity and concreteness and we believe that there's something at the end of this thing that we're going to hold on to this pillar. And it turns out to just to be nothing. And this is what he hates. This is exactly what he hates. He hates that after he has convinced himself or believed that there is this solid pillar, this solid Ebenezer in directly in view that I am laboring towards that when I get up to hold on to it, it just wisps all around and it turns out there's nothing there. He hates this. this. And that's a strong word, right? We we shouldn't overlook the fact that this is deep, loathsome, core-filled spirit hate, right? He hates the experience. And it's, it, it is true. It's not just the cognition, but the experience of believing that there is something solid and then finding out there's nothing. The ex and that is an experience that everybody has. Everybody has had this experience and he hates this experience and everybody hates this experience. Everybody hates the experience of believing that you were working towards a solid and concrete outcome, that your aims were clear. And then it turns out it was completely nothing. 
you've lied to yourself, you've been lied to, you've been deceived, you know, and the host of emotions and disappointments and griefs and destruction that happens because of this, right? And, and the reason, again, why we're dealing with this is to get to the second part of this reading, which is where Solomon wants to give his people that he's talking to, I think probably himself, his progeny, but all of Israel, something that's not going to do that, something that's going to be solid that they can hold on to, that when that when they're regularly reviewing the labors that they undertake, that this will bring the solidity. This will bring the concreteness. This will bring the tang tangible outcome that all the world promises, that the secular society, right, promises, that false gods promise, right, that our flesh can concoct, right, out of thin air, uh, that, that are going to end up being vapid, hevel, right, meaningless, vapor, smoke, uh, that, that are just going to whisk through our fingers. But, you know, again, when we get to the second part here, uh, which we're not there yet, but it's hard. It's impossible for me to not move to this promise because of how I know absolutely brutal. Uh, because I've had this experience as a pastor, right? Yeah. That I convince myself that I'm working towards this end, and then I I never am able to get there. What what just happened? What like it seems like everything fell apart. You know, was this God? Was this me? Like all these questions. I hate this feeling. Right. Yeah. I hate it. That's why, you know, that's why pastors do a lot of hobbies. Right. That's why a lot of people do a lot of hobbies, because we like to actually see something come together that doesn't just like disappear as soon as we get to we, we think we've reached something and then it just disappears. Right. You know, we think we've reached some level of, quote unquote, success and then it disappears. We think we've reached some like milestone and then it crumbles. Right. And when we're left realizing and experiencing the fact that what we do as pastors, almost everything in a congregational life, it's 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 not up to us it's not our creation it's not our making we can labor and toil for a time right this is why i love uh, i really love especially talking about pastoral work coupling this with uh what saint paul talks about in first uh, corinthians 3 when he's starting to talk about the labors of the pastoral ministry in the life of the congregations right which is you know yeah, maybe i watered maybe Maybe Apollos watered, maybe I planted, but God gave the growth. We, did, we had no idea what was going to happen. You can, you can cultivate, you can water, and you can plant. If God's not willing to give the growth, then there's nothing here. And that's where I'm left on a regular basis as a pastor. But that's, I think, where Solomon wants to leave people to, is, is like he is scorching the earth. He is literally scorching Israel with the rhetorical flourish in Ecclesiastes so that there is nothing but ashes and then only God. And that's it. Yeah. God, uh, Solomon wants ashes and then God alone. And that's all there is in Ecclesiastes. He destroys everything, just everything. And, and again, here, he destroy, destroys aimless toil, aimless work, aimless labor, right? Um, and we should probably talk about what, a little bit more concretely, what aimless, what is aimless labor? Um, according to Solomon, I, I think it's pretty clear what it is, but, um, did you want to, did you have another? Well, no, yeah, let's, let, I mean, just, there's, there's so many things that I could, I could comment on. I, I think bringing up first Corinthians three for the positive aspect of what Solomon is talking about is helpful. Even in Solomon's own writings, Psalm 127 is a Psalm written by Solomon and he uses this language, but he says it in a, maybe a more positive way, unless the Lord builds the house the one who builds it labors in vain. Yep. So, I mean, there you have that same idea put more positively, and that's where Solomon is taking us with this text. 
So, I mean, you've, you have talked a lot about the idea of, of aimless toil. What, what does Solomon have in mind about aimless toil here? All right. So um, I think obviously the context and the structure of this passage, what he is mainly focused in is whoever is he is going to hand this work off to, right? right? Who's going to be the inheritor of this? What, is, what are the future prospects for the labor that I've invested? right? Uh, he's not endorsing in any sense, laziness, apathy, right? He's not endorsing that we just don't do any work. He's, he's make, he's making this critical move, this thought experiment that Israel needs to consider who will receive the labors here, right? So now again, I think for him, he's, he is speaking this, he is, he's presenting this information, uh, and this teaching, I think, probably, and this is an arguable claim, to his his direct progeny, right? I think there's some people that would agree that this is for a child, an heir of his, maybe for some sort of nobility to try to like make sure that whoever the child inheritor of the kingdom is and the labors of Solomon knows that the labors of Solomon are done with a particular trajectory and that the progeny should not take up this secular avenue to meaninglessness. Solomon's already explored this the root of wisdom is to be able to take what the ancients have learned and apply it in our daily life so we don't make the mistakes of the ancients. Solomon is hoping that this can be the case. Now, there's another aspect to the wisdom wickedness thing here, which is that, you know, somebody can be wise and secularly wise, which I think he talks about here. They can be secularly wise or secularly foolish. They can be shrewd with finances. They can understand how to plan estates and manage funds. They can understand how to work and accomplish you know, secular sort of, uh, uh, you know, benchmarks. But what Solomon brings up is, are, are we as Israelites to be aimed at secular benchmarks? Is that like, is that all our work is for? Are we, are we simply as, as a religious people to be aimed at the benchmarks that the world constructs for us in these other kingdoms? And that's where he says, that's what, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I'm, who am I leaving this to? Am I leaving? Am I really leaving my labors to a secular world? Is that really, really what my destiny and my my uh, uh, my story will ultimately be? That everything I labored for is just going to get destroyed by some secular wise person or some secular fool, and there's not going to be any other glory that actually exists into eternity because of the labors that I put in. Um, and and that's the question again. You know, uh, and I and I don't I'm, I probably won't have to have this issue because I'm not going to have a ton of money, you know, in the end. But it's a question that a lot of people wonder about. Right. Like we write yeah. our wills. And I know, you know, this is an issue that I have with members in my congregation and people that I talk to. Like, I don't want to leave my inheritance to my kid who never goes to church or, you know, or then you have, you know, like the question of leaving the fruits of labor is a major question that a lot of people struggle with. Um, and again, the aim of Solomon isn't to say that we shouldn't be laboring and that we shouldn't be producing things. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that in the practice of doing this stuff, which is uh, ingrained in the human, human heart, especially as Christian people, we should daily be mindful of why we're walking this path. What, why do I have these? Like, I, I always bring it back to my kids or to my marriage, right? Or my pastoral ministry. Why did I marry this woman? Did I marry this woman for some sort of secular fulfillment? 
did I marry this woman because because I was trying to find my counterpart? Did I marry this woman because some other bogus sexual theory on the development of human beings through marriage and whatever, right? Like, no, that's not why I married this woman. I married this woman because she was a Christian woman and I wanted to complete what God had ordered for me as a man, which which for me is a is to find a woman who is my helper and who will work with me in the fabric and grain of this universe to accomplish all that God has put down for me to accomplish. But if I lose track of that, right, we, we want to have mission statements for our churches and mission statements for all this sort of stuff. Like the, my mission as a husband is to love and serve my wife and to lay down my life for her, just like St. Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter five. If I don't review that on a daily basis, I'm going to get lost in selfish, secular pursuits. And not only am I going to get lost, my marriage is going to get lost. Yeah. Right. If I don't review my intentions for having children, right? If I like, and this is a big problem for a lot of people, a lot of Christians, right? Um, you know, uh, I've talked to I've talked to too many Christians who they're they're married, and I say, you know, they say, well, we're thinking about having a kid. Oh, you know, why do you want to have a kid? Well, we're lonely. Get a dog. Don't have a kid. If that's your if that's your aim, if your if your aim is that you're trying to fill some void of loneliness, get a get a dog, right? Or or start go to pickleball club. Okay, uh, having a kid is not for the personal satisfaction of fulfilling the void of loneliness. Now, having kids does that. I'm very happy that it does that. I'm very happy that I'm not lonely when I go to my house. You know, I'm very happy that all my kids want me to pick them up and hold them. I'm very happy that I never feel lonely. I never feel lonely. And that's a great gift. But that's not why I had kids. That's not the main reason why I had kids. Uh, not at all. And so, but again, like if I don't have, if if my basis for having children is apart from the word and will of God and the clear intentions and desires that God has laid out in the fabric of the cosmos, not simply because the Bible tells me so, but because all of creation points and aims and bends the human creature into the will of God, as a naturally occurring order, if I want to actually work with the fabric of the universe, work with the grain of the universe, then it demands me to come into contact and to revisit the basic questions and aims of my fatherhood. Mm, that, yeah. As it, yeah. As it is very clearly laid out, my primary goal as a father is to make sure my kids fear and love God above everything else. That's the only thing that matters. That's the only thing that matters. So That's my nice. entire day is aimed at that. I wake up, we do devotions and prayers. We have our midday sort of meal and catechetical time where we talk about stuff. The evenings around dinner are, you know, now it's now because I have this call. Now my my kids' questions are, why why does God just call us from one church to another church, dad? You know, and and I answer these questions and I talk with my kids about the way God's will works out in our daily lives. That is my primary vocation and my primary labor as a father. Absolutely. Right? Is to raise my children with aims, right? And aims that are not secular aims, but Christian aims. Because kids get lost in all sorts of secular aims, right? Kids get lost in all sorts of vapid aims, right? I want to be a football player. I want to, you know, I want to make millions of dollars trading baseball cards. I think I can, you know, I think I can whittle these sticks and sell them for a million dollars. And I'm like, okay, maybe. Uh, you know, but making millions of dollars and, you know, having a job that makes you happy, 
right? Those are certainly, those might be good gifts. I don't know. I'm, you know, having a good job is great. Having money, fine. But our aims as Christians are on a different world. And, and again, going back to the statement that I made about Ecclesiastes, Solomon is sort of walking back and forth in this project of Ecclesiastes between these two worlds, the world of faith and the aims of faithful people and the world of the, of the secular, the world of the godless and, and the aims of that secular godless culture and, and secular godless religion, right? The, uh, that, that can capture the hearts and minds of Christian people, both as they're aware of it or unaware of it. And it's very dangerous. And Solomon is pointing out the danger of it um, and, the, and the meaninglessness of it, right? And it really does come down to Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Let's, let's, yeah, we, we just, we need to take a break, Pastor Belts. I'm Please. loving listening to you, but I, let's, let's pick up more of this conversation on the other side. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Sam Belts this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, August 4th. We're studying Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 to 26 with Pastor Sam Belts. He serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Oskaloosa, Iowa. Pastor Belts, prior to the break, you were talking at length about the need to daily go back to the purpose. Why am I doing this labor? And, and in a variety, whatever vocation God has given us. As you were talking about it, I was thinking through, you know, we have this in the Catechism, the table of duties. We sometimes neglect that among the, the parts of the Catechism, but that's there for us to do this precise thing, to go back to those basics. What has God given me to do in this station in life? Yeah. This, I mean, this, is, this, get, this topic gets back to so many basic distinctions that we have overlooked or, or just don't talk about as Christians in general. And, you know, sadly, Lutherans kind of, I, I love being Lutheran. But this is not just a Lutheran distinction. It is because we're the ones talking about it. But this is a basic Christi Christian distinction. And it is, what does living by faith in our daily life look like? What does it look like to live by faith in our daily life? The table of duties in our catechism has this. This is in our commandments all over the place. What we are prohibited from doing, rightly so. But the positive aspects of what daily life living under Christ in his kingdom looks like, you know, yeah, I'm not supposed to steal my neighbor's possessions, but I'm supposed to promote, I'm supposed to promote his possessions and income. What the heck is that about? What are we talking about? There you have an aim, a very basic aim that is given to us very clearly. You could spend your whole life promoting and protecting your neighbor's income and possessions, right? Rather than stealing them. That's a great aim, a, a perfect aim, but it's an aim that's rooted in faith. 
Now, the the again, God wants what's good for his people. He's a good gift giver. This is taught all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout the New Testament. When the people of Israel start treating God and treating the servants of God as if he's holding out on them, as if God is not a good gift giver, as if God is some sort of a liar, as if he fooled us into coming out into this wilderness. You know, you just wanted us to come out here and die. We believe you, God, you know, you and God are on the same page, right? Like the faithlessness of Israel is very, very evident when they start believing and they become convinced that God has lied to them and that they have to, they have to take matters into their own hands. That's the, that is the, one of the most base level experiences of sinfulness that the human being has. Uh, what God wants for his people in particular, he wants this for all creation, which is why he gives so many good gifts to all creation, but especially for his people. As we look in, in Ecclesiastes chapter, chapter two here, he doesn't want what Solomon gets to in chapter 20. So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair. Despair is the absence of meaning. It is void. It is hevel. It is empty. It is gross. It is crushing. And again, we could talk at length and have a whole years and years of studies about the current despair of Western society and culture, how we have become unmoored society and culturally from a basic unified aim as a culture and society, and that this is destroying our culture and society. Now, this is bad enough culturally. This is bad enough societally. But this is devastating for a church body. This is devastating for the church. When the aims of the church have become so murky and so unclear that you have churches and people that become despairing of what we exist to do or confused about what we exist to do, right? I, you know, if you're on the three-year lectionary, this, this is being recorded earlier than the date it's posted, but we have a, a reading coming up in the three-year lectionary that Jesus, uh, from Matthew chapter 13, which gives the church both the aims of the church and the not aims of the church. And if we are not in regular contact with what our aims are as the church, then we become what we are fated to become, which is empty, despairing, or we are, we are going, at, or worse, we're going to try to assume some identity that isn't the church. We're going to become a country club, a clubhouse, a theme park. We're going to become a therapy outpost, right? We're going to become something that God had never intended or aimed both Israel in its day and the temple and the church in the day of Christ to be. To, which has always been an outpost for the gospel and the word of God so that people might hear his word and be gathered into his kingdom and love and serve him in everlasting innocence, righteousness, and blessedness. The aims of God are he, want, he wants what's good for his people, and he doesn't want his people despairing. Because I've been in despair, you've been in despair, we've all touched on despair. Where Again, where we have worked and labored in our marriages with our children, we have worked and labored in our congregations as pastors or as lay people in our buildings, we have, we have attempted to do things we thought they were God-pleasing, we were thought we were doing things right, and maybe we really were, and then everything still just falls apart, and we're forced to re-examine our aims. Now, if our aims are true and right and good, then when things fall apart, we're less prone to despair because we know and we believe 
that our hopes and affections and our passions are not connected to the things of this transient world, even our own bodies and our relationships, but that our, our true and lasting hope is connected to God alone, which again, uh, Sol Solomon is just, just destroying everything so that there might only be God left for the, for the Hebrew in his day and the Christian in our day to hold on to so that God alone might be all in all. And, and sometimes it takes a lot of destruction and a lot of hammering to get to that point, especially if, if here, uh, when Solomon's talking, if we're convinced that our labors will actually lead to some sort of a productive end apart from God, if we believe that we can labor and toil apart from God and that we'll have satisfaction in the end, if we believe that we can labor and toil apart from God and we believe we'll have any security because of our toils, toil and labor for the for the uh, aim of security is going to just fall apart. It's going to it's going to come to nothing, and then we'll be in despair. What do we have? Hmm. We either have nothing, or we have to leave our stuff to somebody else that we don't even know who this guy is, right? And we've we've worked and labored for nothing. We we don't have anything, um, and so God doesn't want His people in despair. He doesn't want his churches in despair. He doesn't want husbands and wives in despair. He doesn't want children in relation to their parents and parents in relation to their children in despair. He wants his people to be in relation to him and then their labors be rightly oriented so that even if something happens, right, even if our house or home gets taken away or our wife or children, right, or if I lose my job, for whatever reason, because of the circumstances of this world and the changes and chances that so often, so often hit us so hard that our joys and our hopes will be fixed in something eternal and in something uh, that lasts beyond the temporal and the secular, right? Which is what, which is, you know, which is why God sent Jesus into this earth so that the human creature could have something tangible and concrete and eternal to hold on to, which is, you know, which brings us to the second half of this, of this passage, which is, which is, again, gets to the major theme, which is that God wants us to enjoy our labor. He wants us to, to get to a point where we are satisfied and enjoy it and we can rest, right? Mm. Which sounds great. Yeah, it does. It, it doesn't does. happen if our aims are wrong and misguided. If our aims are wrong and misguided, if our aims are godless and wicked and evil, right? Uh, which, which again, Solomon points out, uh, to have aimless labor, this is uh, the end of verse uh, 21, not only is this vanity, but it's a great evil. Yeah. It's actually antithetical to godliness, this secular pursuit. That's what evil means here. The evil and wickedness are opposed to righteousness and faithfulness in the Old Testament all over the place. The evil person isn't somebody that just does bad things, right? The evil person is something that is, is uh, recalcitrantly opposed to godly things. And absolutely, is, it's Pharaoh in the plagues, just hard as, can, hard as the granite that the pyramids are made out of, opposed to God and his word. And that's what's evil. And secular aims will ultimately wrap people up into this sort of recalcitrant hardness, granite, stone, hard-heartedness, and, and never, never be able to enjoy 
the good gifts that God presents on a daily basis for us, right? And love the things that God has presented to us for us to labor at, right? Like the labor of a father. I go, again, we cannot escape this. The, la the labor of a husband, the good labor of a pastor, the good labor of a congregation, when you are aware of your aims, right? When I know that my, my aim as a father is to make sure that my children are raised as Christians and not like heathens, right? That my aim is, as a father is to make sure that my children love and fear God above everything else. And then my children, in the midst of a time where they are anxious and upset, when in the midst of a time where there's uncertainty because we don't know if we're going to stay here or move to a different place, their concern is, why is God doing this to us? We should pray. That's, that's what my 11-year-old said. That's what my, my six-year-old told me th this morning. You know, Dad, we should really pray about this a little bit more. You're right, son. We should pray about this a little bit more. Yeah. Right. I thought I thought we I thought we had prayed enough, but we need to pray some more. Let's do it. That's right. Right. That's right. My like to me, I could I could retire and quit everything. <laughs> I'll quit it all, and I'll just put a plaque with that quote on my wall. I'll get rid of everything else. I've got pictures, and I've got books, and I've got deer skulls and i've got all these things that i think are great trophies and all i'll do is i'll have a plaque of that quote from my six-year-old that says you know dad we should probably pray a little bit more about this because that to me is the benchmark of a not aimless fatherhood right yeah. that's it no other yeah. nothing else needs to get e earmarked at all um now the good the good thing the nice good gift that God gives is that that's not going to be my only enjoyment for the existence of my life with my children. Right. It's yeah. and it's like that with my marriage. It's like that with my pastoral ministry. Yeah, there's tough stuff. Yeah, you take your bumps. Yeah, there's ugly things that happen. It happens to pastors, it happens to other people, it happens in marriages, it happens with children, it happens. Right? Is that going to be it? As, is my entire faith and life and trust of God going to change into believing that he is no longer good and no longer desires what's good because of my experience in the circumstance that is maybe not as rosy as the circumstance was prior, right? My same son who wants to pray today might be screaming at me because he doesn't have his oatmeal the right way in a couple of hours, right? Like, does that mean that all faith and love and hope has been lost? No, right? The aims are still the same. And I'll labor still the same because the promise, the promise that I have as pastor, husband, father, isn't a promise from America. It's not a promise from the town I live in. It's not a promise from my mayor. It's not something that Jordan Peterson or any other sort of guru of modern life and living is going to impart to me. It's a promise from God. And that's what, that's what I rest in. I don't rest in anything else. Right. And, and that's what Solomon wants again. Solomon doesn't want people resting in aimlessness because God doesn't want people resting in aimlessness. Solomon wants people like you, like me, like the people listening to the show, like everyday Christians to engage on a daily basis in, in thinking critically about their aims. And this doesn't, this isn't some, like, you don't need a philosophy, philosophy degree to do this. You need to answer basic questions about what I am. I'm a man. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a member of a congregation. 
there are certain duties, there are certain gifts, there are certain vocational aspects that get us all wrapped up in that stuff and give us aims. And when we start becoming more ingrained into those aims, we're going to see how those aims work against so many of the secular aims that we that we have had imparted to us both culturally and and, ch- and with our within our church body, right? We should, you know, like we can be critical of a lot of different things culturally and congregationally and all that sort of stuff. But if our aims, if we're coming back to the aims that Solomon lays out here, then then uh, our conversations and our decision making are probably going to be for the best and not for the worst, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, you you mentioned early on, you know, people reflecting on their life at the end and asking what was it all for, yeah. and at that point, it's really hard to answer. Yeah, if we ask that now, where we are in our younger days, how much better than our life will go? I mean, this is the wisdom that Solomon has. That's right, and 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 you know, this is where uh, culturally I'm a critic, right? So, like every. Every family, every congregation, every marriage, every all parenting, it happens with the influences of the secular world. And we have to sort of navigate this stuff. We have to strip away uh, as we explore Christianity, as we explore our convictions, as our convictions grow. Uh, we strip away things that we become convinced we're not helpful, aren't actually in line with the project that God has for his people, for me individually as a Christian man or me and my family. The, the, the aims that he desires for us are, you know, uh, become more important and have more gravity the deeper and deeper I explore these things. Um, you know, when we talk about, uh, say, parenting, or we talk about marriage, or we talk about congregational life, this exposes culturally things that maybe aren't, maybe aren't the most helpful for us. Maybe that we need to uh, reevaluate as far as the aims of our congregational life go or the aims of our marriage go, right? Like, so one of the things that I work, one of the things that I uh, have experienced and that I think is extremely unhelpful, culturally speaking, in a lot of families with a lot of marriages and a lot of parenting is that mothers and fathers will assume the position of never having done anything wrong and they need to actually have no accountability for their actions towards their children from the children, from the children. And what I mean by that is children should never tell dad, you know, when you started yelling and screaming at us about spilling milk, you were really, you were sinning against us, dad. And it really, it just like, what was the point of that? Hmm. Like as a father, am I never supposed to apologize to my children? Am I never supposed to seek forgiveness for the sins that I commit as a father? Am I supposed to be an impenetrable, hard-hearted man who, who, who gives off the image of never making mistakes? I think that's completely bogus, right? We don't get that image from David. We don't get that image from Solomon. We don't get that image anywhere in the scriptures. Uh, that is not the aim and the image of a manly heart, uh, especially for a father, right? A man after the heart of God is a man who can hear his sins and quickly in contrition, turn to repentance because the spirit is at work to break that sin and return that man to communion, not only with God, but with his children. Mm-hmm. And there's a large cultural swath of the Missouri Senate and America in general that really believes that fathers and mothers, that they shouldn't have to apologize for anything. 
And this bleeds over into our congregations where people feel justified in coming and doing and saying terrible things and then wanting people to act as if nothing had ever happened wrong, right? This is just the exposed sickness of, aim, of secular aims, which is nothing. It, it, turns out to be, it turns out to be destructive and evil and hurtful, and it leads people to despair and anxiety and all the things that, that God does not want for somebody individually, for a congregation, for a family, for a marriage, right? He's made explicitly clear what he wants in all these in all these areas. And we have it clearly. We have it clearly in the scriptures. The scriptures do not lie. God cannot lie. The scriptures are concrete. God is concrete. Everything is there. And it's us, right? It's it's us. We're going, oh, that I don't understand. I never read the Bible. I don't know what it says. It doesn't say that. You know, it, we're we're caught in the Luther Erasmus debate all over again, where Luther's like, no, everything's clear. It's clear in the scriptures. And Erasmus is going, oh no. The scriptures are this giant dark cave. We can't make any assertions. We don't know what's going on. God is a giant mystery. He's never told us anything concrete. And, and that's it, right? Erasmus is the great sinner, even though he's super duper smart. And Luther, even though he's, you know, probably not as accomplished as Erasmus, ends up becoming the greatest theologian because he actually can say with concrete clarity what God wants and what God doesn't want. Hmm. And, and that's, that's, again, where Solomon is at. Solomon is, is doing that distinction. He is doing the work of God in his day to lay clear and concrete what will lead to a joyous end and to lay clear and concrete what will ultimately lead to despair and nothingness, mm. vapid, you know, aimless pursuits. And so here, right, again, going back to it, what God wants for me as a husband is he wants my marriage to my wife the, and the labors and energies that I put in to be joyous and for me to have good gifts and for me to be able to uh, have a good and nurturing, loving, sacrificial relationship for my wife and my wife to have the same reciprocal relationship for me and for me to have a joyous relationship with my children so that I cannot just know but experience the fruits of this labor because that's what God wants. That's the joyousness that comes with having the concrete aim that Solomon desires for Christian people to have. And that concrete aim is God, is his word, it's his will, it's this, it, it, it is that my primary drive as a laborer, right? Like my primary drive as the pastor is to work for the church and the extension of the kingdom. But guess what? I also give an offering and I work extra jobs to have more money to give to the church. That is not a fruitless aim, right? I do not understand people killing themselves in labor and then giving cheaply to the church, believing that their campers and their cars and all the sports and all the stuff is somehow going to have a more eternal impact than showing your children that you are going to sink in and work your butt off at the church. We need more churchmen. We need more church people, right? We need people who are willing to, ex who are willing to work their guts out especially in this day and age, to, to show the importance of the church. And, and that's what Solomon's talking about, right? If, if, I am a, if I am just a laborer, if I am a welder, which is a perfectly good job, and all my energy and effort goes into making a bank account so that I can pay my car payment, pay my, pay my boat payment, pay my camper payment, pay my mortgage, like scrape by on insurance, put some food on the table, and then, and then there's nothing left. 
right? What's the point of this? What are the aim? You know, secular people know you don't buy all this stuff. It's all going to turn to trash anyway. But if we're laboring for what's eternal, right? If our aim is what's eternal and we're laboring for this, then uh, we will never be put to shame. I've got kids knocking on my door right now. All these good gifts, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, all these all these good gifts, Pastor Belts. We've got about two minutes here. Help us to, to wrap things up on this text. And, and how does this text point us to, to Jesus? All right. Well, that's a really, really great question. So uh, you got two minutes to answer it. The reason why this text points us to Jesus is because it uh, centers us on the great gift that God has given. Right. So for Solomon, uh, you know, I feel bad for Solomon because Solomon never got to see the day of his Messiah. What what he is promoting here is wiping the earth clean and there there is God alone. Now, for Solomon, the promise of the Messiah was just that. It was a promise, and it hadn't been concretized yet in the person and work of Jesus. And as Jesus tells us, there are, Jesus tells us in the days of, uh, that he teaches, Matthew 13, there's a lot of people that lived on earth that longed to see the day of the fulfillment of the Messiah, where God would have his concrete manifestation of all promise and eternity walking on earth, especially in Israel and Jerusalem. And that day came in Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have that, which makes our aims even more concrete. We have the promise. We have the person and work of Jesus. We have the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We have what Solomon never had for all of his wealth, for all of his riches, right? All he had, and he had a lot, but he didn't have Jesus. Not really. Not the fulfillment. Not flesh and blood right? Not the witnesses, not the testimonies, not anything. All that gave way to Jesus and the time of the church. So, so now our aims, now our functions, right? Now our place is even clearer than it was in the days of Solomon, right? That's where we have to get to. That for us as Christians, this gives us even more reason to work diligently. This gives us even more reason to labor in our marriages. Now, the image for marriage, like I talked about it earlier, the image for marriage isn't stuck only in Genesis. The image for marriage runs through Jesus in Ephesians 5. Now, for us as, as fathers and mothers, the image of fathers and mothers isn't only stuck in Genesis in the Old Testament. It runs through Jesus into the New Testament. Now, for us as lay people, we are not just stuck in the Old Testament. Everything for us runs through Jesus and the apostles in the church, right? We have more. And this is what this is what John means when he talks about how from his from the hand of Jesus, from the hand of God, we have received grace upon grace. It just does once you have Jesus, it doesn't stop. It's one thing after the other. And I thank God, I thank God that he continues to to reveal this to me on a daily basis. I thank God that I haven't become dull. I thank God that I've been stripped bare and increasingly bare of all of my ambitions and pursuits of, of from my youth that I thought were going to lead to successes and whatevers, right? All the lies we tell ourselves about what our lives are going to look like. And now I'm happy to be a, I'm happy to be a father with children banging on my office door because he wants me to throw the football. Right. I don't know if you can hear be praised. Right. He's banging on the door because he wants me to come and play. Right. That's what I, that's, that's the joyous fulfillment to these labors. 
That's right. That's right. Found in God and what he has given in his word. Pastor Sam Belts is pastor at St. John Lutheran Church in Oskaloosa, Iowa. He's been helping us today to study Ecclesiastes 2, verses 18 to 26. Pastor Belts, thanks for being our guest. Go play football with your son. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you later. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Ecclesiastes 2, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, Sam. Yep, for sure. Have a good one.